You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Mark Cable from University College Dublin. His paper was entitled A Tale of Two Seventeenth-Century Libraries, The Books and Worldviews of a Limerick Patrician and a Cork Landowner. Um, the question of print in early modern Ireland has increasingly attracted attention. Building on the earlier research of E.R. McClintock Dix, bibliographers such as Paul Pollard and Tony Sweeney have established um, an impressive amount of um, data which have enabled the establishment of parameters for the print trade in Ireland and identification of publications relevant to the island in the early modern period. Raymond Gillespie, in his Reading Ireland, Print, Reading and Social Change in Early Modern Ireland, published in 2005, argued that the rise of writing and the spread of print are critical to understanding the nature and depth of social change across the island in the 17th century and which had been previously been interpreted exclusively through the lens of conquest and colonisation. The diverse essays in the Oxford History of the Irish Book, the Irish Book in English, 1550-1800, published in 2006, expertly charts the contours of Irish print culture in the early modern period, while concurrently opening up new scenes of research. The focus of the present paper is on the discernment of broader social and cultural patterns evidenced in book ownership. More especially, it aims to contextualise the contents of two private libraries in 17th century Munster on the basis of extant book lists. The first book list was compiled by Christopher Sexton of Limerick in 1630, while the second inventory records books owned by Sir John Percival of Burton, County Cork, sometime before his death in 1686. It is argued that these book lists are emblematic of the religious and cultural concerns of their owners, while both libraries were concurrently responsive to their local and wider contexts. Gillespie has highlighted what he effectively interprets as motivational strategies for reading in early modern Ireland, which focused respectively on power, salvation, profit and pleasure. While the library lists examined here are illustrative of these strategic reading priorities, it is suggested that the libraries are also reflective of particular local environments. The books owned by Christopher Sexton, his father and grandfather, reflect the predicament of an elite municipal but embattled Protestant family in late 16th and early 17th century Limerick City, while John Percival's books are indicative of an ascendant Protestant landowner with cosmopolitan interests. Although both library lists were compiled in, compiled in North Munster in the 17th century, the context in which these books were collected are quite dissimilar. As in the case of book owners down the ages, factors such as personal interest and preference proximity to the book trade and broader societal developments informed bibliographic choices made by the Sextons and Sir John Percival. Therefore, given the inevitable collocation of time and place in the formation of these libraries, it is necessary briefly to review the circumstances in which these books were assembled. While Christopher Sexton described his book list as, and I quote, a note of my books taken the 15th of July 1630, it is evident that it also contained works first acquired by his grandfather. Colm Lennon has written in detail about the Sextons, and the following summary of the family's history draws heavily on his work. 
The Gaelic family of Sexton, or Chasnan, uh, who originated in Thoman, settled in Limerick City in the late 15th century. The marriage of Edmund Sexton, who was born in 1486, to Catherine, daughter of Robert Fitznicholas Arthur, a mayor of the city, is indicative of the family's ascent to the ranks of the urban elite. The family further prospered thanks to the patronage of the Earl of Kildare, who owned a manor at Adair. Edmund Sexton successfully avoided implication in the Kildare Rebellion in 1534, and around this time, also, he sufficiently impressed Henry VIII, such that the sovereign appointed him server of his chamber. Much to the fury of Limerick's corporation, Henry ordered that its members appoint Edmund mayor of the city for the period 1535-6. Edmund provoked further hostility from the corporation when he succeeded in taking possession of the Priory of St. Mary in 1537 in advance of the programme of monastic dissolution. His conversion to Protestantism during the reign of Edward VI alienated him further from his fellow patricians who remained solidly loyal to the old church. The evangelical beliefs of the Sextons proved a highly influential consideration in the formation of the family's library. Edmund's son Stephen, 1544-1593, who served as mayor of Limerick in 1585, was also committed to the new faith. In a city where the Counter-Reformation became embedded during Queen Mary's reign, driven by clerics such as Richard Cray, who established a Catholic school in the city's former Dominican priory, and with the arrival of the papal commissary, David Wolfe, S.J., in 1560. Colm Lennon has suggested that Stephen purchased books for his collection during a business trip to London in 1593. In Christopher's 1630 list, there are references to, and I quote, an old great Bible of my grandfather's, an old New Testament of my grandfather's, and a reference to my grandfather's notes in a book of select um, psalms. Stephen's son, Edmund, uh, is the second Edmund, Edmund Jr., um, maintained a notebook of family and municipal affairs, and he claimed in this that his fa- father endured, int- endured intimidation from the city's religious major- majority, which contributed to his early death. Edmund, the younger, who was born in 1569, was educated at Oxford and at the Inns of Court, and he must surely have contributed significantly to the family library, although he's not mentioned by name uh, in the 1630 list. Notwithstanding that Edmund served as mayor of Limerick on at least four occasions, Colin Lennon has argued that his career was essentially, and I quote, a struggle for survival in a hostile environment. It will be proposed here that the Sexton family library, whose formation uh, encompassed three generations, is reflective of their vulnerable and often acrimonious religious predicament in a city dominated by a Catholic elite. On the other hand, the, per- the, the Percivals of Burton and North Cork um, were also Protestants, but unlike the Sextons, they enjoyed a degree of social and religious ease which eluded their co-religionists in Limerick. The family originated in Somerset, and Richard Percival, who settled in Ireland at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, had worked previously at the Court of Wards, and he made a successful transition to its Irish counterpart. His son, Philip, succeeded him as the Court's clerk and registrar, and by dint of shrewd discovery of concealed holdings and through loans to Old English and Gaelic-Irish landowners, he took control of their lands as collateral and proceeded to assemble a large estate in North Cork, as well as acquiring lands in Kildare, Dublin and Tipperary. David Dixon has queried the degree of pressure, lawful or not, used to create a remarkably compact estate, which Dixon characterises in a quote, neatly carved out of the patrimonies of over a dozen Old English and old Irish families north of the Blackwater. Philip, who was knighted in 1636, 
developed Burton in the parish of Churchtown as the focus of the estate and named it after a property he had acquired in Somerset. On his death in 1647, Philip was succeeded by his eldest son, John, who began to manage his Irish states actively from the mid-1650s. Shortly before his death in 1665, John began the construction of a mansion which would become Burton House. Now, Rolf Lober has described this house, which was finished in the early 1670s, as designed in the late Caroline style, and as such, it resembled mansions like uh, Bewley in County Louth and Aircourt in County Galway. The design of these houses marked a break with the previous tradition of castle architecture, which had been defensive in purpose. An external symmetry of design betokened a sense of prosperity and affluence. In a similar vein, the library of John Percival, who was born in 1660, the third baronet, is resonant of the cultural vitality engendered by the Restoration. The image of the elegant and sophisticated dandy painted around 1670-1674 by the fashionable Dublin artist Thomas Pooley provides a glimpse of John as an adolescent, possibly while he attended Christ Church, Oxford. However, John, who succeeded uh, his elder brother, brother to, the, uh, to the baronetcy in 1680, died six years later of fever in his mid-twenties. His early death greatly attenuated the Percival's family links with their Cork estate as his three sons were sent to England to be cared for by their great-uncle, Sir Robert Suttle. On the death in 1691 of the eldest son, Edward, he was succeeded by his brother John Percival, who became the fifth baronet. John, who pursued his political career in London, was created Earl of Egmont in the Irish uh, peerage in 1733, and his role as co-founder of the colony of Georgia in 1732 is suggestive of the extent to which his interests ranged well beyond North Cork. These summary accounts of the Sexton and Percival families reveal a marked divergence of political and cultural experience, notwithstanding a common commitment to the established church and a similar cultural vision informed in the case of Edmund Sexton, the younger who died in 1637, by his education at Oxford and the Inns of Court, and in the case of John Percival, who died in 1686, by his time at Westminster School and Oxford as well. Inevitably, historical granularity introduces a degree of complexity uh, to synthetic narratives which are constructed around broad trends and developments over a long durée. Nevertheless, in the context of these 17th-century Munster Protestant libraries, it is arguable that their contents, as evidenced in the extant book lists, attest both to the particular circumstances which they were formed as well as to the influence of elite English Protestant culture. While both libraries have long since been dispersed, details of the titles they accommodated provide sufficient evidence to enable a tentative reconstruction of their owners' interests and concerns. The list of books drafted by Christopher Sexton in 1630, now extant in the 19th century transcript, contain approximately, um, contains approximately 136 items. Both book lists, by the way, are in manuscript um, format in the British Library. Uh, in the Sexton uh, list, there are four subheadings within, uh, within, the, uh, within uh, w- uh, in the manuscript as, 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 as extant. Divinity, history, school books, and law. Although Stephen Sexton, who died in 1593, was certainly an enthusiastic reader of scripture, and Edmund, who died, Edmund the Younger, who died in 1637, wrote of his own religious travails, it must be assumed that the latter's second son, Christopher, a lawyer shared his father's and grandfather's godly outlook in terms of reading preferences. Books relating to religion account for somewhat over a third of the library, while the remaining titles relate to history, classical texts, law and practical or self-help manuals, covering a variety of subjects from gardening to health. 
The Sexton Collection was clearly conceived as a working library which aimed to inform and nurture the religious faith of its owners, while concurrently providing access to texts and law and information on practical quotidian matters. In the light of the Western Gaelic origins of the Sextons, it is interesting that the cultural outlook exemplified in these books is centred on a Protestant and English world. Colm Lennon has suggested an interest in the Irish language on the part of Edmund on the basis of his entry into his notebook of the Ten Commandments in Irish, and that this in turn might hint at an interest in Gaelic evangelisation. Moreover, Professor Lennon has speculated that the hostility which greeted the first Edmund Sexton's embrace of the Reformation during the reign of Edward VI was in some measure exacerbated by his Gaelic ethnicity. Given the Protestantism of the O'Briens of Thomond, it is arguable that the evangelical sympathies of the Sextons seem less exceptional within a local Gaelic milieu. However, the absence of the Irish New Testament, 1602, and the Irish Book of Common Prayer, uh, Book of Common Prayer sorry, 1608, from the Sexton Library, highlights how by the beginning of the 17th century, Protestantism and Anglicisation effectively intersected. Not surprisingly, the Sexton Collection was well-stocked in terms of biblical and scriptural texts. The first entry in Christopher's list refers to, and I quote, an old great Bible of my grandfather's, and the second entry mentions another lesser Bible, sometimes Sir Edward Denny's, while the third entry mentions a small Bible. The reference to a Bible once owned by uh, Edward Denny of of, uh, Tralee suggests that books were sold, gifted, or exchanged among the Protestant minority in North Munster. Stephen Sexton's evangelical favour is also evident in the reference uh, later in the list to, and I quote, an old New Testament of my grandfather's uh, and um, the reference to my grandfather's notes in a book of select psalms. Additionally, the list referred to two copies of Latin Testaments, a Psalter, and to the Greek Testament and Geneva Psalms. Interestingly, the list contains only a handful of exegetical books which might have been used to enhance the family's reading of scripture. These works of commentary and explication include, and I quote, an exposition of St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians, which might be Edward Elton's an exposition of the Epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians, London, 1615, a copy of Hugh Broughton's A Consent of, of Scripture, and two tracts described as, and I quote, as seven sermons about the 23rd Psalm, and uh, additionally a paraphrase upon the Psalms, possibly an English translation from a, a Latin work. If the list contains no reference to the Gaelic Book of Common Prayer, nor does it refer refer to a copy in English. Instead, a reference to, and I quote, the Latin service book may reflect the linguistic realities of late 16th century Limerick. The presence of a copy of of the Church of Ireland's 1615 Articles of Religion in the library indicates that the family remained informed of ecclesiastical debates. Likewise, an interest in the English church and monarchy is evidenced in the library's copy of King James's a Meditation Upon the Lord's Prayer, London, 1619. Given the embattled affiliation of the sections to the established church, it's not surprising that it turns to works of an apologetic nature, probably with a view to formulating a rebuttal of arguments presented by their fellow citizens in denigration of their evangelical fervour. Polemical works of advocacy in the library included an English translation from Latin of John Jewell's The Apology of the Church of England, John Terry's The Trial of Truth, uh, Arthur Dent's The Rune of Rome, and John White's The Way to the True Church. And tracts described simply as, uh, I quote, the testimony of the true church and an answer to the mass priest's supplication, which I haven't been able to trace so far. <clears throat> Samuel Heron's An Answer to the Popish Rhyme, lately scattered abroad in, Western, in West Parts, and much, re- much relied upon by some simply seduced, London 1608, provides a reminder of the popular dimension of early modern um, sectarian conflict. 
Of course, the sections also own conventional works of piety and spirituality, such as the classic Imitatio Christi, traditionally attributed to Thomas Akempis, and published in various English um, translations in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, the library also included works of spiritual reflection and meditation, things such as um, um, the attractively titled William Hollis's Seven Sobs of a so- or Sorrowful Soul for Sin, and so on. Now, interestingly, the Sexton Library contained a number of French Protestant works in English translation. These works are suggestive of Calvinist sympathies on the part of the family and are certainly indicative of an informed interest in continental reform movements. The work described in the list as a, a brief of Calvin's institution may refer to an abridgment of the institution of Christian religion written by Master John Calvin, which was published in Edinburgh in 1587. The work referred to as the testimony of the true church possibly represents an English version of Simon de Voyon, uh, his Discours sur le dénombrement des de, de, de docteurs de l'Église de Dieu, which is published in translation in the 1580s and 1618. The work recorded uh, as a comfort for an afflicted conscience may refer to the 1591 English translation of Protestant theologian Jean de Lespine's Traité pour Ostelle, la crainte de la mort. Um, the reference in the list to Bayes' Confession possibly alludes to theologian and scholar Theodore de Bayes' uh, Confessio Christianiae Fide, uh, Fidei, which was published in English translation in 1575. The Sexton Library contained three translations to English of works written by the Protestant theologian and anti-monarchist Philippe de Mornay. The references to Plessis of the Map, Plessis of, of the Mass, rather, Plessis of the Church, Plessis of Life and Death, allude to English translations from French, published in the late 16th century. Interestingly, de Mornay's Excellent Discours de la Vie et de la Mort was rendered in English by the Countess of Pembroke and published in 1592. An interest in the Continental Reformation is also evidenced in the Sexton's possession of a work described as Nicholas Polanus of the Whole Course of Divinity in Latin Folio, which is possibly the Partitionum Theologicarum of the German Reformed theologian Amandus Polanus. The presence of uh, these continental works, especially those translated from French, certainly suggests an interest in Calvinism. This inference is also supported by the presence of the library of, of a work simply described as a book of reasons of subscription, which may correspond to Samuel Heron's a defense of the minister's reasons for refusal of subscription to the Book of Common Prayer. So therefore, the absence of an Irish or English Book of Common Prayer in the Sexton Library may not have been an entirely casual omission. While works of religion and divinity constitute the majority of the books owned by the Saxons, their library also contained school books, works concerning history, law, and household management. Volumes relating to history were classified under the rubric, and I quote, history and other books of morality, end of quote, which suggests that the Saxons read history in search of exemplary precedent. Such works are diverse in scope. They include, for example, Suetonius's History of the Twelve Caesars, an unidentified title attributed to the Roman historian Tacitus, the history of Louis XI, and a work which is termed The Abridgment of Stowe's Chronicle, which possibly corresponds to a 1607 summary of John Stowe's The Chronicles of England. The utilitarian nature of the library is reflected in a, section of, of a selection of manuals or guides to subjects such as horsemanship, husbandry, physic, gardening, arithmetic, and a work described as, and I quote, a small colloquy of diverse languages. The list also contained a selection of law books which were presumably used for professional and family purposes by Edmund and Christopher. If the Saxons were marginalised within Limerick on account of their Protestantism, their books revealed them to have been far from isolated in terms of access um, to ideas and knowledge they contained. 
No doubt the Sextons acquired books during sojourns in London, and perhaps just as often they purchased books in Limerick. Raymond Gillespie has demonstrated the existence of a thriving trade in print between Southern Ireland and Bristol. He cites the example of a ship called the Joseph, which sailed from Bristol to Yall in March 1612, with cargoes for 11 Limerick merchants, which all contained books, among other merchandise. The extensive library of the Limerick Catholic doctor, Thomas Arthur, who in the 1620s numbered Edmund Sexton among his patients, was strongly medical in focus and contained books from across the continent. So therefore, it is tempting to speculate that Arthur and Sexton, divided in matters of faith, discussed a shared professional interest in books. So although atypical in their confessional preferences, the Sextons nonetheless form part of a wider literate and cosmopolitan elite cohort in early 17th century Limerick. To move on to John uh, Percival. On the death of his elder brother in 1860, John Percival, now third baronet, embarked on a lavish programme of extension and embellishment of Burton. An avid consumer of newsletters and gazettes, Percival was clearly not entirely content to spend his days quietly in rustic splendour. In 1682, he commissioned the Surveyor General, Sir William Robinson, to build a townhouse for him on Merchant's Quay overlooking the Liffey. Indeed, John's extravagance and desire for grandeur was such that he incurred debts of £11,000 by the time of his premature passing in 1686. At home in North Cork, Toby Bernard has remarked that, and I quote, Sir John Percival shook his locality. Neighbours were encouraged to visit him. He seldom ventured into the houses of others. So typically a laconic uh, comment from Toby Bernard. But I think it sums up John's personality, rather, rather grand, uh, Philip John's rather, rather grandiose personality. Shortly after Philip, uh, Percival's death, an inventory was made of Burton's contents. And what must be a rare description of a space for reading in 17th century Ireland, the study was said to contain, and I quote, 500 books of all sorts, great and small, one scritoire, one slate table, one pair of organs, one bass viol, one small table with four cane-bottomed chairs. Intriguingly, the study also contained a bed, a suit of armour and three swords. This relatively large collection of 500 volumes may have contained books owned by his father and brother. However, a list of 91 titles headed Catalogue of My Books is extant among John's correspondence, and this seems to detail the contents of his personal collection. In fact, John probably owned more books as he purchased books in Oxford as a student and he frequented St Paul's Churchyard while in London. After her husband's unexpected passing, his wife Catherine, who had returned to England, was anxious to raise cash to satisfy his debtors, and she quickly arranged for a house auction in Burton. Meticulous in her role as executress, executrix, rather, and initially uncertain as, how best, as to how best to dispose of her husband's books, and fearful of the effect of the damp Irish climate on Burton's contents. I mean, her fear of the damp Irish climate, I think, was, was, wasn't entirely hysterical since um, her husband had passed away as a result of a fever in the Irish rain. Uh, but Catherine was meticulous in, in her role, and she, she documents in some detail um, uh, the instructions uh, that, were that were to be left to her agent in Cork uh, to follow up on her departure. Uh, so she was uncertain initially as to how best to dispose of her husband's books, and fearful, as I said, of the, of the effect of the damp Irish climate, Catherine agreed in September 1686 to a suggestion from the family's agent that she should forward a catalogue of the library to London for valuation purposes with a view to their sale. Uh, a few years later, Burton Hall was set alight during the Williamite Wars, and if Percival's books had indeed been previously sold, they had narrowly avoided incineration. 
The strong religious focus of Percival's book list is surely not uh, a reflection not just of his own piety, but also of the centrality of Protestantism to Anglo-Irish identity in the 17th century. Curiously, although the list contains no reference to biblical texts, there is mention of Hammond's annotations in the New Testament. However, the list features several works of religious or spiritual instruction, such as Dr. Hammond's Practical Catechism, Ball's Catechism, Help to Young Communicants, and Wilkins' Principles of Religion. Evidently, Percival had a particular interest in sermons, and his library cons- uh, contains several collected volumes of this genre, uh, Sanderson's sermons, uh, Andrews, Tillis, uh, Dr. Barrett's sermons, Dr. Needham, uh, Alistair's, and so on. A range of devotional tracts and treatises suggested that Percival was intensely serious in the matter of his interior spirituality. Among the books which feature on the list are Bishop Andrews' devotions, uh, Richard Alistair's The Lively Oracles, New Year's Gifts of Devotions, Sutton Upon the Sacrament, Devout Communicant, Collett's Devotions, and The True and Certain Way to Heaven, which had parallel texts in French and English. On the basis of this list, it appears that Percival had scant interest in history when it did not pertain to ecclesiastical matters. Only two works of historical relevance appear among his books, Dr. Barnett's History of the Reformation, which was published in 1579, and Dr. Carr's Lives of the Fathers, which I haven't managed to trace yet. The presence of a selection of work by Jeremy Taylor on the list suggests that Percival was especially interested in the work of this eminent Caroline uh, divine and English prose stylist. However, this is, uh, I think, the interesting bit. Percival's taste in reading was not exclusively uh, in spiritually edifying material. Unlike the Sexton's Library, Percival's collection featured a range of classic and contemporary English literary works with a special emphasis on drama. For instance, his list contains references to Chaucer's works, Dr. Francis Bacon's essays, Herbert's poems, Cowley's poems, Philip's poems, Dryden's plays, two volumes, Sir William uh, Davenant's volume of tragedies, and then he has... Uh, generically of comedies, one volume. He has a reference to Beaumont and Fletcher's plays and Lord Orrery's Orrery's four plays. In addition to drama, it seems that Percival was also deeply interested in music, as indicated by the presence in his study of musical instruments. His list refers to Simpson's introduction to music, which is probably either Christopher Simpson's uh, The Principles of Practical Music, 1665, or his later, A Compendium of Practical Music, 1678. Percival also owned works he described respectively as Pedro's songbook and um, another songbook in folio. A taste for continental literature is indicated by references to Cleopatra, which is possibly a, a, a translation of a French romance published in 1652, and a reference to something called Pastor Fido, which I think is Il Pastor Fido, a faithful shepherd with an edition of the verse of the poem 1676. I see my um, English uh, literary colleagues nodding, so you excuse my <laughs> relative degree of ignorance here. Uh, the presence of a French liturgy, French Testament, and Festo's French grammar in his library indicate a level of proficiency in French on the part of Percival. Curiously, aside from an English translation of Seneca's Morals, there is no mention of uh, other Greek or Latin classics. Like the Sexton's collection, Percival's, Percival's also contain works of a quotidian nature, such as uh, Salmon's um, uh, London Dispensatory, Cookery Dissected, Rachel's Book of Cookery, Health Improvement, and Mathematical Recreations. So in sum, Percival's library is characterised by an arresting blend of piety and levity, which reflects the outlook of a young man given an equal measure to spiritual reflection and worldly delight. Now, by way of conclusion, the books collected by the Sextons and and Percival support Robert Darnton's apparently sweeping claim that, and I quote from Darnton, throughout most of Western history, and especially in the 16th and 17th centuries, reading was seen above all as a spiritual exercise, end of quote. In this respect, Darnton argued that, and I quote again, for most people, 
reading remained a sacred activity, which placed them, and I quote, in the presence of the word, un uh, unlocked holy mysteries. Clearly, in the case of these uh, monster libraries, religious faith was a critical factor in their formation and perceived utility. Reading of religious material enabled these Irish Protestants to make sense of an often hostile and uncertain environment. However, in the time which elapsed between Christopher's completion, uh, Christopher Sexton's completion of the inventory of his books in 1630 and the list compiled by John Percival in the mid-1680s, it is possible to discern the beginnings of a fundamental shift from reading purely for spiritual and practical ends to reading for pleasure and entertainment. Thank you very much.